It's the TEH podcast, episode number 155. I'm Leo Notenboom of askleo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of macmost.com. Happy February. I guess this is our second for February, but well, okay, yes. fine. Happy, happy Tuesday then, since we record on Tuesdays. <laughs> yes, indeed. How's life in your neck of the woods? Uh, it's, uh, it's pretty good. You know, it's still, uh, still cold, still mostly isolating, but starting to get out a little bit. I keep reading headlines that promise, you know, mask mandates potentially going away next month in some corners of the world. And Oh, they're gone here. They, we got a uh, Friday. They got rid of them here. Oh, in really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just hoping that this isn't like them teasing us again and another variant comes around the corner and boom, back into uh, lockdown. I, I do watch the statistics very carefully because mm-hmm. uh, I love statistics um, and I find them much more valuable than people's opinions on things. And I am happy to see that basically my prediction from the middle of December has played out almost exactly. What was your prediction? My prediction was that, uh, you know, the cases would skyrocket and would peak in mid January mm-hmm. and then would fall as in an even uh, you know, kind of bell curve of uh, mm-hmm. with uh, how fast they rose. <clears throat> and uh, that is indeed seems to be happening. I also predicted that uh, New York, uh, particularly New York City, would be about a week ahead of where I am in Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could actually look at New York City st- stats and predict what it would be like a week f- later in Denver. And that's been true. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, yeah. It's pretty good. Somehow, I don't know. I, you know, Deb and I, uh, my wife, uh, we kind of feel like uh, we're the only two people in Denver that didn't have COVID at some point. Yeah, it's weird. We're in the same position. I mean, we know several people who've been through it, um, especially with Omicron. The um, uh, the number of people that that you know, friends of friends and friends that have gotten it. Are much higher than they were in the preceding oh, sure. two years oh, yeah. over the last over the last month or so, and yet we have, to the best of our knowledge, anyway, uh, so far avoided it. Knock on wood. So it'll be interesting to see how things turn out in the, in, in the coming weeks. Um, like I said, I think everybody's big fear though is is another variant popping up and uh, and causing it all to to you know, go to hell again. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course. I mean, because we've been fooled before. I mean, this is the, the you know, fourth wave. But anyway, I'm I'm optimistic. Yes. Uh, and um, I'm looking forward to sitting in the corner of Starbucks again. I guys, uh, I think I've I may have mentioned that here before, but you know, I'm an introvert. I'm, I am. I just am. And uh, even so, uh, I have surprised myself over the past couple of years by how much I miss actually being in certain situations around people. Uh, one of them being sitting in a crowded. Starbucks off in the quarter, <laughs> having my coffee, just sort of watching the crowd. Um, it'll be a while before we're back in that situation, but still, I'm I just surprised myself by missing it. Well, you know, the day that everything went to heck um, was March 13th, 2020. Mm-hmm. Two years uh, ago almost. Yeah. Yep. And that night, my wife and I had tickets to see a comedian in concert at a very large theater not you know we're not talking an intimate comedy club we're talking it was like a five thousand seat theater sure we had that night and the show was canceled that day mm-hmm. like when the morning it was on and it was canceled <laughs> and all that and it has been rescheduled several several times and in two weeks 
it is going to, it, it's on schedule to happen. So it, it's kind of weird, you know, it's like, are we ready to go? I mean, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we didn't, well, actually just this last weekend, we still didn't go to our neighborhood trivia night. So right. are we ready to make the leap in such a short period of time to a theater filled with 5,000 people? Um, but part of us is like, well, this was the thing that was happening right then, you know, two years ago, you know, maybe this is like, you know, as a game developer, you know, I almost feel like this is the symmetry. This is the, yes, yes. Uh, this is the exit. Oh yeah. Of course it comes back to this event at the beginning of the game that's significant. And we have to somehow exit to the next you know, level <laughs> through this event. So, but if you don't, it starts all over again. That's the problem. Right? Yeah, exactly. If we fail, then it's like, yeah. And, and then another thing is, is that the, the tickets were a, a birthday present uh, to my wife. Oh. So, you know, like uh, this is the second year of jokes of, I don't need to get you a birthday present because <laughs> we haven't used your, you know, one, two years ago. So, yeah. That's recent. Anyway. Well, so you, you, you know that I have a reasonably good head of hair for my age. Okay. I will, I will. Yes. I will tell you that that might be less this morning simply because <laughs> I've been tearing it out. Um, I, I, in our notes for our listeners, the, uh, uh, the comment is that I need to, uh, I need to rant a little uh, about spam specifically and not the mm -hmm. usual, Oh, I get too much spam. No, I get, I get spam and I deal with it. And it's just, it's that part of it is a fact of life that I've come to grips with and come to terms with and have solutions for, and it doesn't really impact me that much. No, what I'm talking about is what it is to be the owner of a server that mm. is attempting to send email in, yes. the 20, in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Oh my Lord. Um, we, uh, I've, so I'm running some software for Ask Leo that basically tries to send email mm -hmm. and uh, it stopped. It just mm -hmm. failed. And then it started working for some email addresses and not for others. And what it boiled down to is that the email sending service that I was using, which is one of those that um, their job is to deliver email. So mm -hmm. they do all the things to make sure that they've got all their equipment are, are set up properly and their IPs aren't blacklisted. And if they are, they get on it and all that kind of stuff. Well, as it turns out, one provider, uh, Yahoo specifically, was uh, throttling and then blocking email sent from uh, my corner of their service, which meant that um, not only did that explain why last week some friends of ours didn't get email because I run my personal email through this as well, but um, it explained why uh, you know some of these Ask Leo emails weren't going through. Eh, okay, fine, you know that it happens. Let's go figure out a a way to either uh, fix the problem, which they claimed um, in the typical. Uh, almost a bureaucratic way was, well, you know, it's your own fault. Just stop sending so much spam to Yahoo. Well, I'm not. I mean, it's not what I do. Yeah. It's the fact that I'm on a shared server, a service of theirs. And I'm sure that, you know, some of the other users of the of the service um, are, are in fact sending spam or as is also happening right now, uh, Yahoo and especially Microsoft uh, through Outlook.com and all the uh, Microsoft related email addresses, uh, Outlook.com is uh, very quick to block uh, servers for sending spam. 
So they tend to be a little overreactive. And I don't know what's going on. I just know that down that path, I'm not going to solve it. So I went to uh, one of my other uh, solutions, which is, okay, instead of sending it through the server, how about if I send it direct? Well, you know, that could kind of sort of work. But what I ended up doing was saying, okay, let's take a look at the IP address that I'd be sending from and does it show up on any blacklists? It does. Hmm. Uh, and that's because the IP address is shared uh, with a service that I actually end up providing for ex-Microsoft folk. I've mentioned it here before. I think it's exmsft.com. And it's a, it's a way for Microsoft people who have left the company to get an email address that resembles what they had at Microsoft so that people can find them. Unfortunately, um, of the almost 1,000 uh, email accounts that are on that service, every once in a while, I'll say like once a year, uh, somebody screws up, their account gets compromised, and all of a sudden, they're sending spam. This morning, I had to clear over 10,000 email messages out of the sending queue. Those are just the ones that were being blocked already. They did not count the ones that had already made it through. Wow. So in a sense, it's no surprise that that server is on um, uh, a blacklist or two or three, as the case may be. Uh, so, you know, that's not a path that I could come up with a solution for or make a, you know, do something quick. Uh, then I said, okay, fine. Well, you know, I have other servers. I could certainly route the email through one of my other servers, which are on different IP addresses uh, and uh, see if they do well. But unfortunately those servers, well, they were the reason I was using this email sending service to begin with. So even if I sent through one of my other servers, it would still go through the original ser sending service that I had a problem with. Things are getting complicated already. So, mm -hmm. I spun up another server at uh, AWS, which is where I have um, my others. Most of my servers are at AW, uh, Amazon's uh, Amazon Web Services and check the IP address. And it's not on any blacklists. And it's one that I've had for a while, uh, the server and the IP address. So it should be fine. Um, Amazon is also very, very careful about sending email if you attempt to send email from one of your servers directly, at some point, they either throttle or block you until you ask for permission. And then they make you attest to uh, the steps you take to make sure that you're not sending spam. So that's where I'm at this morning. But it dawned on me that the thinking, so what this all got me to thinking, and the reason I needed to rant is not because I took all these steps. I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely grateful that I have all of these tools in my toolbox and that, you know, if I can't make this one work, I can try that one. If I can't make that one work, I can try this one. Mm -hmm. It was an interesting morning under a little bit of pressure because I wanted to get email working, but it was kind of fun in the sense that, you know, not everybody can just fire up a server <laughs> to act as an email server or to act right. as an email gateway, which is fun. Um, I think you're in the same same category. You would actually, you'd be frustrated at the reason, but you'd be having fun implementing the solution. Well, yeah. And I agree with that whole, like, how do other people handle this kind of thing? Like, oh, I have some know-how. Well, they don't um, run their own mail servers to begin that, that, with. Right? I guess so. But sometimes you run into situations where yes. um, you're like, how would other people deal with this problem Yes. yes. Uh, okay. without the, all this knowledge, all these pieces that I already knew? Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, but it got me to thinking of something. And it's mm -hmm. it's it actually relates to something else that 
at its core sounds like it's completely unrelated to anything I've talked about so far. When the 8086 processor made the leap, uh, they, they, there was a brief period where there was an 8186, but then they went to the 8286. The 8286 was a 16-bit processor, not a 32-bit processor, but they were able to address more than 16 bits of memory, of RAM. And the way they did that was with what was called a segmented architecture. You had the normal uh, you know, registers in the CPU that had numbers, like they always do. And there was a special set of uh, segment registers that were combined then with the regular registers to form greater than 16-bit addresses. So it was very strange. It was odd. Um, it was not a complete transition from 16 to 32-bit computing because mm -hmm. it put all of the onus on the software to handle this bizarre form of memory addressing. And of course, uh, this is during the time I was at Microsoft, and it was something that every single programmer who worked on the x86, uh, you know, who worked on Windows, on, on Windows applications, had to deal with the amount of code that was involved in simply handling not just this bizarre architecture, but you know what happens when it fails? How do you really run out of memory? How do you make sure that you know all the usual memory memory issues? Um, it, it was one of those things where everybody was wishing, couldn't we just go to 32-bit directly? It would be so much simpler. Mm. And of course, uh, you know, early versions of Windows all had to deal with the segmented architecture. It was baked into the core of Windows. There was a tremendous number of man hours devoted to dealing with this issue. Then, of course, the 386 came out and eventually we started transitioning to true 32-bit computers. And, uh, you know, eventually all this segmented architecture code um, either made its way out or became less we uh, became less reliant on it as everything else transitioned to uh, to full 32-bit. I, I don't know if they kicked it out completely because, of course, compatibility. But the, the, the parallel here is the number of man hours. It's one of those things where looking back, if we would have gone directly to 32-bit software without having this intermediate step, uh, things would have progressed so much more quickly and potentially been so much more stable along the way. If we lived in a world without spam, mm. can you imagine what email would be like today? It would yeah. work. It would work. Uh, but yeah. really what, what is amazing is I've spent an entire morning and I'm just this one little guy in one little corner of a half a dozen, you know, maybe three or four servers trying to deal with email. Imagine the cost of all that spam across the globe. It's not just handling the spam. It's the software to try and detect the spam. It's the messages you missed because of spam filtering. It's the, it's the messages you have to deal with because the spam filtering is imperfect. It all comes back to spam. And it is such an incredible cost of burden that's been placed on, on the internet as a whole that um, it just, it just floors me when I start to think about how much it's costing us all. 
Um, and, and every time I deal with a spam issue, which is not uncommon when we're dealing with, you know, trying to get servers working and talking to each other, um, it just comes to mind that, you know what? <laughs> this is an interesting topic. Uh, I, you know, a lot of times I've, I've read solutions to, you know, ultimate solutions to this of course, spam but There problem. are many, many, many solutions. And, and <laughs> what it would take would be a, a set of standards and agreements between email companies. One of the problems with that, it's the same reason we have phone spam still, right. um, is that you know there are thousands and thousands. You can have really tiny companies. You, you could have, I mean, both you and I obviously could set up our own you know, email service. So yeah. how, how do you work within that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, but maybe... Maybe that's like the ultimate solution. Get if you think of all the biggest ones, right? You think of uh, Gmail, Microsoft, uh, Yahoo, uh, Apple, um, you know, and you go and say, you know, who are the top ten, top fifteen email providers? Mm -hmm. They probably count for at some point like 98 percent of all email sent. And say, what if they got together, each sent a representative to a meeting? probably tech oriented. It would probably take about 10 minutes for them to figure out some standards that they could use to verify senders, right? And make email work, but it would push out all the little providers, including individuals that want to set up their own email server. Right. Now, uh, the last time I thought of this years and years ago, my thinking would stop right there. And I would say, no, wait a minute, because it's the internet. The internet's got to be open right. and free. And we cannot, you know, can you imagine the problem if communications had to pass through this group of 15 email providers, you know, how it could be, but it's 2022 and email no longer has anything even closely resembling a monopoly on communication. Mm -hmm. Now there are all of these different messaging companies, mm -hmm. some of which specialize in, you know, uh, privacy and being separate from everything else and all of that. If all the email companies got together, you know, or 15 or 25 or whatever, agreed on a whole protocol for verifying senders back and forth that would eliminate spam. Then it would solve the spam problem and probably not encroach too much on freedoms because I don't, I, you know, there's so many alternatives, you know, and you could set up your own alternative, you know, your own system. It could even be an email-like alternative if you want. But I, it's just that I think, I think at the time we all dismissed those, the problem was it was email was so predominant right. that, that the, the very thought of there being any kind of agreement between email companies to control email it was scary. And maybe it's just not scary anymore. I mean, I get, I had somebody just yesterday that I went back and forth with trying to solve their messages problem as in messages. There's an app called messages on the back on the iPhone, mm -hmm. trying to figure out why they couldn't do something with uh, attachments. And eventually they realized that, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I mean, Facebook Messenger. <laughs> <laughs> and this whole time. And of course, the feature set is close enough right. that every single thing the person said about this and that matched. I didn't see any indication that this was not messages. You know, except the fact that what I was suggesting wasn't working for them. Right. <laughs> and, but, you know, so it just, and I never use Facebook Messenger for any, anything. And here's somebody that uses it for everything. Right. And I know I've run into other people like that. I don't know. Maybe it is time to, for a, some sort of more centralized solution. SMS has always been like that, right? 
there's always been a bunch of companies that control how SMS works. Right. But we still get tons of SMS spam. Not, yeah, but nowhere near the number that of uh, email, mm -hmm. email spam. And, you know, especially considering how much of it is filtered at many levels before it even gets to us. Right. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's time for that. I've heard the, the whole idea of like, uh, uh, it should cost you a penny, uh, cost you a penny per email. I've heard that one. Yep. We'll, we'll eliminate the problem. And you could even do it with a penny per email, but your first like 1000 are free, right. <laughs> you right. know, which we, you know, or maybe 10,000 are free even, which is which actually means the, most people pay nothing, you know, it's the Amazon model. Um, if you, um, at, again, as a server owner, if you, mm. Uh, so you, there, there's two ways you can send email out of a, out of an Amazon server. You can send it directly just as if it's a standalone server, which is what I do. Or uh, you can use their, I think it's called SES, Simple Email Service or something like that. Yeah. Um, of course, it is not simple, but, and it has, it has requirements, right? First, you have to justify yourself before they'll even let you send email. Um, and then uh, it's literally, I think that cost, framework where you know the first few the first number are free and after that you start paying incrementally which basically means those two things alone will prevent uh people from sending spam uh sending true spam the true garbage spam that we all get uh through their services uh, yeah like there's like i said there's two barriers that doesn't mean that you know a large company who can make the justification and spend the money can't start sending out spam, but that at least they know where it came from. Exactly. Accountability, accountability. Uh, verifiability, all yep. those things, you add those in yep. and that problem goes away pretty fast. Yep. Um, it's interesting because one of the things that I also am doing now when I set up uh, my own email domain, and this is actually something that is independent of whether or not you're running your own email server. But if you have your own domain from which you send email, like I have emails coming mm -hmm. from askleo.com or my personal domain or my other work domains or any of a number of others, um, is there are now several things you should be doing to not guarantee, but improve your deliverability. Uh, and uh, those are things now, you know, you do them in, in DNS, it's DKIM, it's um, DMARC, it's SPF. I mean, there's, you know, these are um, acronyms that mean nothing to anybody who hasn't, who isn't dealing with email at, at that level. But the point is that those are all things that um, uh, you as a, uh, a domain owner in conjunction with the server that is sending your domain can add additional information to your emails that uh, improves their chances of deliverability by increasing their uh, objective uh, le legitimacy. But again, that's one of those things that it's an incremental thing. Not everybody's doing it. More and yeah. more people are doing it. Uh, the one thing that happened a couple of years ago that actually does give me hope for some kinds of change being possible is that uh, one of the things in these records that I was just talking about allows the domain owner to specify what should happen if email appears to come from their domain, but doesn't meet these other criteria. There's mm. a little bit of cryptography involved and a few other things. But, and in general, all of the 
settings basically say either this stuff is in place, but ignore it, or this stuff is in place, use it in an advisory capacity. In other words, use it as part of your more global calculations as to whether or not this particular email is spam. Mm. But there's also the hard line that says, you know what? If things don't match, don't deliver the email, right? Mm. Yahoo turned that on a couple of years ago for emails sent from Yahoo from the Yahoo domains. And it sounds great until you're operating a mailing list because mm. a mailing list is essentially a forward. So someone who is an uh, yahoo.com email user would send email to the mailing list. The mailing list would then in turn distribute it to however many other people are on the list. But in that process, the email looks like it's coming from the mailing list and not the original user, except that the from address is of course the original user. So mm. there's a mismatch and all of a sudden they were breaking mailing lists everywhere. Yeah. That and that caused a lot of scrambling uh, for workarounds, but that's you know, that kind of stuff happens. And I think that's a really good example of how, yeah, there are things we can do, but given the current completely decentralized nature of email, every change you make has unintended consequences that the receiving end needs to somehow account for. Mm. Um, and I think that that's one of the biggest barriers. Even, even if we could get those top 15 or 20 companies to agree, which in my opinion will never happen, uh, there's still enough of a, of a roadblock that uh, all these other kinds of changes, all these wonderful solutions, there are many, like I said, there are many, many solutions. We'll just never agree on which the right ones are and they'll never get implemented. Hmm. Um, there, or if they do things like, um, you know, these DNS records that I've been talking about, or even the change that, that, uh, Yahoo made, they'll get it implemented very, very slowly. Anyway, that was my rant. I just, I just needed to spend a little bit of time feeling better about the amount of time I spent this morning pulling my hair out. Right. Uh, hopefully it'll grow back. Well, and you know, a related thing that happened recently is, um, I, I don't know if you've ever used this, but you know, you mentioned having email on your domain. Yes. One way to set that up, of course, is to, you know, you own the domain. Right. Uh, maybe you even have a web server using that domain, mm -hmm. but you could, you don't have to have the email server on the same place as the web server. Correct. So you can go to an email service and there are many and say, use my domain, just the email part of it. Mm -hmm. And so I can send email, but I don't have to have my own server, my own whole setup and maintain right. it. One of the biggest uh, services is Google for this. Uh, Gmail, of course, big email service, but you could also have Gmail with your own domain. And the way to set that up in the past, at least, was to use uh, something called Google Apps originally. Now, I think now it's called Google Workspace. Right. And um, it, the idea was that I could have my domain take care of all the web stuff myself. That's what I wanted. But I could have my email address handled by Google. So it was Gmail. It was like they were doing all the spam filtering. They were making sure it was, you know, the uptime was maximized. There were, you know, all this stuff. And it was great. And it was free. They actually did have, you know, a long time ago, they had a paid tier. But yeah, you know, I wasn't anywhere near what was needed for the paid tier. So you could have this free thing. And, and it was like, okay, which makes sense. Gmail is free. They're not paying for my domain. I am. So it's things just getting routed through and all that. Well, they, they're changing that. They're making it so this Google Workspace thing is, is now going to cost something. It's going to be very cheap. 
Okay. And I had like, yeah, okay, that's fine. As soon as I saw how much it was, I didn't even blink. I was like, you know, it's about time. I, I love the email service. Right. <laughs> it works great. I'm perfectly happy paying a little something. I pay more for other things I don't value nearly as much as that. <laughs> okay. But the interesting thing was, is that I, since I own the domain, I always thought, hey, it's a good idea. If a family member needs an email address, I could provide them with one. Right. I just add an account under my blanket there right. using my domain and say, there you go. There's your email address. And it's at, you know, it's using my domain. And the great thing is, is that I have control of that domain. So, you know, you, we could move it somewhere else in the future and all of that. Mm-hmm. And while that was free, that didn't really matter. But now that it costs something, it's actually per account. So Bummer. I have, <laughs> yeah. So like the main thing that it's like 99.9% of all the use was my own email address. But then I had these other little email addresses I had set up. Yep. That now we're going to cost me three bucks a month adding on top uh, or eventually, you know, Google's sure. rolling it out slowly. They basically make you sign up for it and say, you're going to pay for it, but we're going to charge you $0 for a long time right now. Yeah. Eventually that will go to like $3 a month. Um, so, yeah. So I had to like figure out other solutions because these ha- were not the primary email addresses for anybody. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. These were basically, you know, good email addresses to use and, um, in some cases, they were checking it in addition to their regular account. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, there was a forwarding set up. Right. And uh, basically, what I had to do is I, a few of them I was able to get rid of and say, okay, we're not going to do, we're not going to do that anymore. Just kill, mm-hmm. I'll just kill it. And in like one case, I couldn't kill it. No way. But I needed, it was only forwarding. So I had to actually remove that account, take that email address, and set it up as an alias on my account. Oh, so now okay. I'm getting all of that person's email, but I set up a rule <laughs> in Gmail. So basically when email arrives for them, I never see it. It gets forwarded and deleted. That's which hilarious. Is interesting because technically it sits in my deleted folder for a while. So right. it's a good thing. It's family and <laughs> there's some trust there. And of course there's going to be the eventual move over to like anything using that you know, move it over to the, you know, your real email address. Yeah. That's but, it, but it, but it was funny. It was an unintended consequence. When I saw this, yes. I was like, Oh, three bucks a month, please. Yes. I will gladly pay that. And Oh wait, Oh no. Per, <laughs> per email address. I don't think so. Times a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's kind of a, a weird thing, but you know, what are you going to do? It's anyway. funny. I, I do the same thing. I actually have one domain. Uh, I don't use it for a web server anywhere, although I could, but I have it, uh, its email uh, hosted or handled in that same manner by protonmail.com. They actually, yeah. they offer the same service if you, and I signed up for them. It's, it's a paid service. So I, I, you know, this it's a side effect of being a paid service that they will do email for domain. Uh, and I actually end up using this uh, for two things. This email path is completely independent of any of my other emails. Uh, so in other words, if you know all the other infrastructure behind my normal emails fails, mm-hmm. uh, this one will keep working, you know, or vice versa. So I ended up using it as my recovery address uh, for, you know, my recovery addresses are hosted on here. Uh, and I also use it for diagnostics. 
uh, so I yeah. can see exactly what is and isn't happening and where things may or may not be breaking along the path. But yeah, it's, it, it's, and I actually don't know how many email addresses I get. They, they take the domain and I think they gave me a, a limit of how many I could use, maybe five without paying more or something like that. But uh, this isn't one of those domains where I'd be throwing email addresses on it all the time. Askleo.com has a number of email addresses on it, or my business ad, uh, account has a number of email addresses on it. My personal has a number of email addresses addresses on it simply because one of the things I do is I sign up to uh, mailing lists using a different email address. I have an email address dedicated to certain um, online stores, services, that kind of stuff. Uh, so that if anything happens, I have those quickly identified as being uh, unique to that. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting infrastructure. And like I said, almost all of it would be completely redundant and unnecessary if it weren't for spam. Yeah. Yep. So um, in a quick update, I think on uh, last week's discussion, we talked about Spotify and how various musicians were leaving Spotify and so forth. Now, to be clear, I, I, it's a complicated issue and I'm not necessarily taking a hard stand for or against Spotify itself. They're in a hard position because I know they want to provide free speech, but also there's really legitimate criticism about, well, but what if that free speech is killing people, right? By providing this information, I get it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, would not recommend following Joe Rogan for medical advice is, is the bottom line that I would, that I would go, go to there. However, uh, one of the things I was doing last week, and I think I mentioned it, is I was looking at some of the other music services, some of which I already had access to. Uh, Amazon Music, I think, is the one that I mentioned last week. And I was a little disappointed by the selection, but, you know, it was there, it works, it's nice, all that kind of stuff. And then it dawned on me a couple of days later that, you know, um, I've signed up for YouTube Premium. Now, for what it's worth, if you spend any time looking at YouTube videos, if, if that's a, a, a even a, a, a half of a reasonable chunk of your time, YouTube Premium is worth every penny. And I say that because YouTube Premium gives you an ad-free experience on YouTube. And I know that they throw a lot of ads in YouTube videos before and now during at random places and after a uh, YouTube premium just makes that all go away. It's not horribly expensive. And if you've got multiple accounts, uh, there's a family plan so that you can actually share this YouTube premium for a reduced cost across multiple accounts. And that's what I've got. I've got YouTube premium on my main account, but then I've also shared it with my wife and I've shared it with my business account. So, you know, we're all not seeing ads. Well, wait, 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 let's, Hold on right there. <laughs> you say you have one premium account yes, and you're somehow sharing that yes. with other accounts on YouTube. How yes. does that work? It's the, it's the family plan. So there's two oh. levels. There's, okay. you know, the free plan that we all. Oh, okay. Oh, so uses. you're, I, yes. There's okay. the premium level where one account, but then, you know, it's, I forget what it is. It's like nine bucks a month or something like that. But then for a couple, two, $3 more a month, you then are given the opportunity to share this feature set with up to, I think, five other accounts that are supposed to be quote unquote family. Mm. Um, and so that's what I've done. I've, I've paid that extra okay. two or three bucks a month and, you know, for that. So they're getting $9 worth of value for like the two or three dollars that I incremental and I had to pay. Okay. Anyway, um, 
what I did not, it, I realized it when I signed up, but that also then added to my account uh, YouTube Music. Now, everybody's got YouTube Music, but this is, again, YouTube Music um, ad-free and apparently a bigger collection. So I decided, you know, I should go poke around and just sort of see, because I've never, ever thought of YouTube Music as a music service. Uh, it just, it just, it doesn't seem to be on the radar, right? When we hear about it, we talk about Spotify and Pandora and Amazon Music and a few others. Uh, Title is another one that's getting fairly, uh, fairly big. But YouTube Music, okay, let's have a look at it. So I did, and it's a good news, bad news scenario. The good news is that the catalog is immense, um, as far as I can tell. There's probably nothing you can't find on YouTube Music. Uh, On the other hand, uh, the YouTube Music interface leaves a lot to be desired. I find it uh, probably one of the most difficult to navigate interfaces and difficult for me to find what I want uh, or, you know, do my playlists or whatever. Now, that may just be a matter of me needing to get used to it. But when it comes down to it, things like Spotify and Spotify probably has the the, the best user experience, Amazon Music, eh, and YouTube Music, not so much. Uh, what I have not looked into in depth are things like audio quality, the thing that uh, Neil Young was complaining about for Spotify. Uh, my sense is it's certainly good enough for my ears, which is fine. Uh, but I just, I found it an interesting thing that I want to throw out there for everybody to at least throw into their bucket to consider if they're looking for an alternative Spotify, because it's not something that's talked about a lot. And there's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, I think you, <laughs> you'll laugh when I tell you what a, one of my initial criteria was. And that is on Spotify, I found a, uh, you know, they have charts playlists, right? The yeah. top 100, the top 50, whatever. Uh, but they also happen to have charts for different countries. Uh, So of course, you can guess, I immediately started listening to the top 100 popular songs in the Netherlands, (laughs) which, you know, kind of cool, get to listen to a different language. Although what was really funny is that I think the top five or the top top six songs were all in English anyway. But uh, the bottom line was that, okay, yeah, that's one measure of how much stuff is out here. I went to Amazon Music and they had nothing like that, nothing at all. They've got all the popular music, the current music, the, you know, but but not the esoteric stuff that would be out in the fringes. When I went to YouTube Music, of course, I said, okay, fine, I'll just use that as a litmus test as well. And sure enough, there's the top 100 for the Netherlands right now, the top 100 chart. So been listening to that on YouTube Music. My sense is that YouTube probably has so much more. And a lot of it, I shouldn't say more than Spotify, but it has, I would guess that it has a, a collection that is as large. Uh, you know, it's probably a, a two, in terms of a Venn diagram, uh, there's a lot of overlap, but the circles are about the same size. Uh, anyway, it's just something else for people to consider. I'm having fun with it. I'm learning their interface. I, I grumble a little bit at that. But uh, that's usually the music that I've got going on in the background right now, just to give it a try, since I had it already. I did, I was paying for it, and I didn't even know it. Yeah, I I also was paying for it. I didn't really think about it, because I have YouTube Premium, and I um, 
never have tried YouTube music and why not? I am actually, as we speak, downloading the app to my phone. Mm -hmm. I see that on the desktop, you pretty much have to use a web browser, the looks. Yes. Although what they do is they, I, they at some point will say, Hey, did you know you can do this interesting thing where you can create an app out of a web page? Yeah. You know, that that's fine. I mean, I'll run with that. Um, it does mean that <laughs> when I needed to update my browser the other day, uh, it says, you know, I'm going to close all the windows. Okay. And then the music stopped because even though it was a separate quote unquote app, it was yeah. still being serviced by the same browser. Interesting. Yeah. So I'll try. I, I also, I may, I may go to the YouTube uh, premium family plan as well. Cause I've always had the problem where I, for a while now I, I've been a subscriber um, to for two reasons. One is I don't want to see the ads. Mm -hmm. uh, number two is I always encourage others. Since of course my YouTube presence is pretty large uh, with Mac most. Um, I always encourage people to join YouTube premium because mm -hmm. number one, they don't see ads mm -hmm. uh, number two, but the people they're watching, which may include me, but I'm probably just a small part of that. Right. Um, they get paid anyway. Right. So if you want the people who are creating who are creating content that you like to get paid for that content, and you don't want to see videos, mm -hmm. the solution is not ad blocker. The solution is you pay for premium. it. Yep. And um, but the problem I've always had is, of course, I subscribe using my my account, my business account, mm -hmm. because otherwise, you know, that's what I sit all day if I'm uploading videos and all that. I'm lodged into that one. So then when I sit at the TV and try to watch a uh, something on YouTube, which is actually going to segue nicely with something at the end of the yes. show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I end up seeing ads because I don't want to log on with my business account right. to my TV that the whole family watches. Yep. Um, yep. That could create some weird things. And also it's like, I'm very mindful of the fact that there's business stuff attached to this account. <laughs> so I don't want to willy nilly log into something. So what I should probably do is actually up it to the family plan and then make either my regular account or create a new YouTube account just for whichever you sure. around the house yep. and say, that's a member of the family. Yep. So, anyway. It's interesting. If I'm not mistaken, I don't know if you're also paying for Google one of uh, the Google drive additional. Storage. I am. <laughs> Do I get something for that too? You can share it too. <laughs> well, so, uh, so yeah. for example, on my, my, again, my business account, Okay. Um, I'm paying for, I think, what is it? The two terabyte option or something like that. Yeah. Because it turned out to be one of the most cost-effective cloud storages and my servers pump thing out, things out to it. Um, but when I set up the sharing, all of a sudden my personal account suddenly had nice. like two terabytes of space. So yeah, they, share, the they share the two terabytes. It's not that yeah. they each get their own, but they're sharing it. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, it is cool. Um, so yeah, so a follow-up on our Spotify coverage. <laughs> and now to NFTs, another thing that we've covered a lot on, um, there's just a small new note this week. There was an interesting article uh, from a game publisher of sorts uh, about NFTs. Uh, we talked about them before. And one of the th things that I talked about a lot was the fact that, you know, this the game NFTs, you know, in-app purchases or game object mm -hmm. purchases as NFTs really to me seemed pretty uh, I don't know, red alert kind of stuff. Like <laughs> this is not, no. Um, and uh, it looks like I'm not the only one. So there's a, a popular site called itch.io, which is a, a, basically think of it like steam or Xbox live, or, you know, one of those game development uh, or game publishing platforms 
you could publish a game. You don't have to meet with, you know, like marketing people and pitch a game and all that. You could just like be a hobbyist, create a game and upload one to their service. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's a very kind of artist centric type of thing. And you find all sorts of weird, unusual indie games there. Um, And they came up and said in a tweet, uh, basically NFTs are a scam. If you think that are legitimately useful for anything other than the exploitation of creators, financial scams, and the destruction of the planet, <laughs> then we ask that please you reevaluate your life choices. That's a great message. <laughs> and they had a follow-up too that was actually even worse, but um, or stronger, I should say, not worse. But uh, yeah, so and basically, there's a lot of talk. Uh, you know, we'll link to an article about uh, how NFTs really aren't empowering the creators. You know, there's basically artists creating things. And then there's the NFT community who are, you know, throwing money around uh, trying to get rich, but it's not necessarily coming back to the vast majority of the people creating things. Right. Um, and also about how, you know, the game, the in, in-game purchases, you know, how volatile it is. Like you could go and say, oh, this gives me true ownership of this object in the game. Well, okay, but if the game developer shuts the game down, you're done. Good, good luck trying to yeah. <laughs> value that at anything above zero dollars. You know, so it's uh, yeah, it, it's kind of uh, it, it hits a lot of the same points that I have been thinking. It's just great to see other people saying the same thing. So I know I'm not crazy and I'm not missing something here. Um, what I find interesting is that, you know, thinking about game mechanics and, and especially mm-hmm. like these massive, massively multiplayer games, um, it's interesting to have unique things you can buy within the game. Yeah. Right? You definitely. can buy something that is only yours. Yeah. You don't need NFTs to do that. Nope. So yeah, it's been around for a long time. What do NFTs really get you in this, this world? I, I mean, I, I suppose I, I, it's like, you know, you, what there should be uh, giving you is that the company can't screw you over, right? You own this NFT. It's out of the company's control who owns it now. Right. And now you could sell it, you know, you could, you know, do whatever you want with it. And the, the company can't, can't, you know, it's supposedly like if you were kicked out of the game, say for bad behavior, Mm -hmm. you would still have the NFT. And then you could say, well, I'm not allowed in the game anymore, but I could sell this cool object, this cool sword in the game sure. or whatever to somebody else. Um, whereas if you bought the object in the game and then you're kicked out of the game, well, you don't, you don't have anything anymore. But there, but, there's nothing about what you described that requires it be an NFT. No. And there's nothing that um, would prevent an, an NFT from also being hit by the same thing. I mean, the game developer could just go and say, you know, all those NFTs we sold. Yeah. None of them do anything anymore. <laughs> like they're just, they're not valid anymore in the game. There's nothing exclusive to them from doing that. one of a kind high end sword is now a little rubber Nerf gun. Yeah. Or <laughs> it doesn't even show up in your inventory anymore because it, it's yeah. not part of the game. So, you know, you don't own it. You know, it's like thinking, well, now I really own it. No, you don't really own it. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of the stuff, like when I did my survey that time, we talked about it about two months ago or so, when I did my survey of oh, what, what are the popular games now that are doing NFTs? I found either games that don't exist yet. They were just selling the NFTs, but the game itself wasn't there mm-hmm. or the game itself was really poor basic, you know, card trading game that was basically, a, you know, it was like there was a pyramid scheme 
built into it. And the NFTs were the way to monetize the pyramid scheme. You know, you uh, getting these objects and then just basically wasting time trying to build these objects up or what they were worth and then relationships with other players. I mean, it was just a mess. And what I have to take a step back and say, well, wait a minute, what does this really have to do with games? I mean, the idea of games is, you know, oh, I've created something interesting. It's fun to play. It's interesting. It tells a story. It challenges your mind. It's, you know, uh, you know, whatever. All this stuff just kind of gets in the way of good games. Right. And it it becomes something else. So anyway, we'll link to that. And you can go down a rabbit hole, too. With that one article, there's a bunch of links in there. And I had to stop at one point because I went from one link to another link, then to another article, to another article. And then I went you know, back and it's like, wow, this led me in directions. I have articles about NFTs that I had missed before that were older from like last year. Mm-hmm. I found a, an article from uh, a guy that uh, kind of created in the NFT market or the NFTs mm-hmm. in a project in 2014 and how he's speaking out about like, this is not what... That's not what I meant. Basically, yeah, exactly. This is not having crappy graphics, you know, mass produced and then sold, and you don't actually even get the the actual piece of art. Right. um, Right. Was is not uh, is not was not the purpose here. It's funny. I I still keep harking back to uh, Beanie Babies. I really do. Yeah. Um, It just seems like there's so much fear, especially at the time, because this is during the time my wife and I had. The, the doll shop open, um, you know, we carried Beanie Babies and it was amazing to watch people flock to them and collect them and quote unquote, invest in them. And what does that sound like, right? It sounds exactly like NFTs today. So sure. Not, well, actually, it's not to say that plush animals aren't, can't be valuable. Yes. But that they, particular implementation of plush animals was not getting you what you thought. No. And, and I mean, I would argue, yeah, Beanie Babies are better than nfts i i'm looking at a shelf here in my office where there's a bunch of little action figures and souvenirs from trips mm-hmm. you know various little things that i picked up in in stores and around the world they're all just cute little things you know uh some doctor who stuff some star wars stuff some you know <laughs> things like that it probably if i had a that i have no um I, i'm not under any uh you know uh, theory that these are worth anything right you know, if I right. put them in a box for a garage sale, I, I'm not going to, you know, think anybody's going to pay me any amount of money for all of yeah, them together, let alone sentimental value, one. not market value. But they're yeah. still like interesting. Right. They're still kind of cool. They're still like, there's still people I know that if they came to visit my office, I would be like, oh, wait, I got to show you something. And I grab one of them <laughs> and show them like this thing from like a TV show that we both enjoyed. And it'd be like, oh, that's neat. It's, it's like a Beanie Babies like that. It's still something. Yes. I'm sure if you showed a Beanie Baby to a three-year-old, yes. they would go and say, oh, cool. And they grab it and play with it. Right? Yep. That's uh, something that's you can't do with an NFT. You're not going to show a three-year-old. Actually, the, it, one of the best, oh, I wish I knew where it was. There was a quote I read on one article today, on so many I read, that basically uh, said, one of the reasons people have so much trouble explaining NFTs under the explain it like I'm five. You know, right. that's the whole thing. Explain it like I'm five. To complex subject. Well, you can't do that with NFTs because any five-year-old's gonna, <laughs> gonna just uh, <laughs> gonna be like, what? I, I'm not interested. That's stupid. That is totally stupid. That's why you can't explain it like I'm five. You have to explain it like you're an IQ of 180 
and just confuse people. <laughs> and then, you know, I don't know. I sound like a grumpy old man, but I think, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Own it. Yeah. Um, so moving on. Yes. Um, are you watching any of the Olympics? Uh, yes. We're watching the, the one Olympic, one Olympic winter sport to rule them all. Curling. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We love curling. Really? Cool. Uh, yes. Yep. I, I, it's funny over the years, what the Olympics are the only time I watch curling. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, pretty much us too. Yeah. And, um, well, I have to do it by myself because my, <laughs> my, my wife just, just doesn't know. She doesn't want to go there. It's just not that interesting to her, but I actually understand it and like it. It's kind of cool. Maybe it's yeah. the Canadian, maybe it's the Canadian in me. There you go. The, so what, are, what, how are you watching it? Peacock. Interesting. So are you paying more for Peacock or just straight Peacock? I I pay for Peacock because we got addicted to the office and wanted an easy way okay. to just go and like show us all the episodes and we can go through and do all that. And then we found a couple other shows. Of course. And so we never got it, you know, and then it's like, oh, the Olympics are on Peacock. Oh, look, every single curling match is on <laughs> Peacock. Okay. You know, so we're still, we're still paying for Peacock. Okay. We're not, uh, yeah. but uh, there's still a tremendous amount available. And I think what you, what you've, what's come up then is a great example of it's very, very confusing what to find where for money. You can solve that problem. Apparently it's all yes. on Peacock. Yes. It's but very with, well arranged yes. but without money uh, or without additional money, because some of what's available is available only through uh, uh, your, a previous signing up to uh, a cable service, or in my case, YouTube TV counts as a streaming service. Um, so that gets you access to a bunch of stuff, both on NBCOlympics.com as well as through YouTube TV. What we're finding is, and I just don't know if it's unique to the streaming situation or if it's unique to the fact that the Olympics are on the other side of the planet from us, I have a really hard time understanding when things are happening. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, last night we wanted to watch uh, the figure skating, mm -hmm. the men's short program, uh, individual figure, figure skating. And I went looking, it's like, okay, it's scheduled to be here, but is that live or is it really our time? Or are they delaying it and showing it as if it were happening live in our time? Uh, which is something else that that does happen. I ended up uh, firing up a stream on NBCOlympics.com, which purported to be the live stream from the venue. Hmm. Uh, so, okay, I will take that at face value and think that, yep, things were happening in Beijing in real time. Uh, we then were watching the primary coverage on our local NBC affiliate, because this is a high value um, item for, you know, they, this is the one that makes the network. Curling is not going to make the network very often, but no. um, but uh, figure skating is one of those things that almost always shows through, especially when they've got a, you know, a, the potential for, uh, you know, a, a top ranked American to, to actually do well. And so, you know, we had that on, I had that on, I was streaming at the same time. Uh, what I discovered was that the live stream on NBCOlympics.com was about, I want to say, 20 to 30 seconds 
behind what eventually showed up on the network. And it was another set of camera angles. In other words, they actually, yeah, that surprised me. I thought that, okay, what the, all they're really doing is, is, you know, for the, for the network is picking up the stream from the venue. But in fact, apparently there's multiple different streams from the venue. And it was kind of interesting to see that, okay, what they're focusing on in, uh, on the, uh, the network is different than what they're paying attention to on the stream. Uh, the biggest difference in, in skating, what ends up happening is you have someone, you know, skate their program, and then you have to wait for a while for the results. But while you're waiting for a while, the next skater can actually take to the ice and start warming up a little bit before their segment. So one stream would be focused on the skater that had just finished and would just focus on them, focus on that little box that they go to to get their results. Uh, while the other stream, the live stream, was basically picking up yeah, they're focusing on the next guy coming up. I just thought it was interesting that they were doing this, that there were so many different angles available. Uh, what I have heard, and I don't know if it's because of this confusion, uh, with all the different places you can get uh, Olympics coverage, because you can get it on your local NBC affiliate, you can huh? get it on USA, you can get it on a couple of other channels, and depending on there's things that are recorded and things that are on demand and things that you know are are upcoming. I mean, it's just I personally find it very very confusing as to how they've arranged things as compared to years in the past. Um, I am in fact going to go take a look at how much Peacock is going to cost me if I want to go down that route because it yeah if it, I, simplifi I if it simplifies things that may very well be you know I don't there. even yeah we've just been watching on Peacock it it shows up it's like a whole little special menu sure. well there's a special menu sport. in YouTube TV as well which I thought was which led me to believe that oh great everything's going to show up here as well but apparently not yeah um, and uh the one comment that i read in a headline over the past couple of days is that viewership for the olympics is way down compared to previous years and while streaming confusion isn't new because we've been going through this transition for the past several olympics it's Enough that I wonder if combined with uh, the the time difference, which I think is a, also always a big issue when it's on the other side of the planet, and some level of anti-Chinese sentiment, because that just exists, I wonder if that's all contributing. Uh, and the confusion is a big part of it. Maybe. Um, we uh, Looking at the stuff on Peacock, it's been pretty nice because it's all there and it's commercial free. Mm -hmm. And uh, we almost fell into this little trap here. You know, we saw, okay, upcoming, here, list the up, oh, that's another thing, a list upcoming. Right. So it'll say, say this is this curly match is going to be live at this time. Right. And your, your local time, so you know when to go tune in. And then it will show ones that are in progress. Mm -hmm. And we were looking and saying, okay, well, oh, they're all three hours. Right. Okay. So they're three hours there. So we decided, luckily, the first one to say, well, let's watch. There's a couple that are completed. Let's you know watch those, and then I saw. Wait, one hour and forty five minutes. Oh, because there's downtime, because there are breaks in the play. So they cut out the downtime. They cut out the stuff that's totally dead. So then, so we haven't watched anything live because that's a three hour commitment, right? <laughs> to sit. I mean, it's probably less. It's probably you know they probably block out three hours, right? And then maybe it's two and a half, you know. But 
it's like, well, we'll watch. And you could see where they cut. You can see them being like, oh, and they're going to go off and there's a timeout for this. And then boof, and you could see the cut. And we like, oh, okay, great. I'm glad we didn't have to just sit here and not have anything to watch during that time. Cool. Um, so we can watch a little bit better. And it's, it's, uh, it's nice. Now, of course, watching stuff that's not live means we have to be, be aware of spoilers. <laughs> I've already had, believe it or not, without trying, and I am certainly not doing a thing where I'm looking at any curling information online, right? Despite that, I still saw a headline that revealed a result right. of a curling match. And I was right. like, ah, oh, what are the chances, right? Um, and it, it, the Olympics have always had this problem because they usually take place in a different time zone from where right. you are, sometimes the other side of the world. Right. So if you're going to watch it, you're usually watching in prime time, even if it's up to you, you're streaming, it's the evening. This is when you watch things. Um, and you know the event could have taken place 12 hours, 24 hours before. Uh, and if you, so you, you almost have to just ignore the news. It's, it's hard. And it does bring up the whole thing. I mean, spoilers seem to be a big pain right now for me. <laughs> Personally, I uh, we talked about uh, the book of Boba Fett last week. Yes, and I had an important thing in that spoiled for me because it was so interesting <laughs> that it started to, making the memes. To, yes. yes, to everybody online <laughs> that I was like, uh, uh. so then a moment in that episode, you know, at the beginning of the episode that should have been oh so cool was like yeah I know thanks. <laughs> um, it's also in you know in different TV series too because it's always a problem, especially if a TV series becomes popular, uh, and yep. the movies you know having it now uh, as well. Well, always I guess. Um, yep. Also, there's an an article made me think of this was um, there. There's going to be the same problem with the Super Bowl because of streaming because the Super Bowl is available to be watched in many different ways now. Gone are the days where there's one network, you had to have this one station, you had to watch it on live TV with all the, you know, the same as everybody else. Um, now there are ways to actually stream the Super Bowl. Uh, but there was an article on CNET that warned that the streaming will actually be as much as 40 seconds behind right. a like live over the air cable type network. That matches which, my experience with the Olympics last night. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the thing is, is that, you know, it's such a big event and you may want to participate in say social media where you can, uh, you know, say, uh, you know, be looking on Twitters to people commenting on the last play and all of that. Right. And then have things spoiled for you. Right. Um, and this stuff happened even the Super Bowl is a big enough thing in the United States, obviously only in the United States that even noise could you know if you're at a super bowl uh watching the super bowl and there's a super bowl party across the street from you you could be quietly sitting there uh they could be setting up the play and then you could hear all sorts of shouts from across the street or the next apartment funny. or wherever and be like oh boy something's about to happen yep, yep and then you wait and you wait and you know whatever so i wonder in 40 seconds, you know, 30 to 20, 30, 40 seconds that we're talking about yeah. here, that seems pretty arbitrary. And I wonder if it's um, uh, partly technology. Yeah, definitely um, a, partially technology. Partially technology. And I wonder also if it is uh, the moral equivalent of the five second delay on a lot of things where somebody is sitting over a kill switch so that if something horrid happens, they have the opportunity <laughs> to... Um, uh, to cut the feed 
you know, they've got lots of time to cut the feed before yeah, it, it makes itself. I mean, know, cause I, besides the, uh, you know, the whole idea that football is an extremely violent sport, <laughs> a, a piece of anatomy could be shown during the Super Bowl halftime show that may that's been everybody. known to happen. Yes. <laughs> you know, forget the blood on the, on the field of men slamming into each Which other. Which is actually much more socially acceptable, apparently, than certain. Very much more socially acces- parts, yeah. acceptable, the violence. So, um, anyway, so it's funny. I accidentally, I just realized that I had something spoiled for me yesterday. Um, the speed skating which is something that I pay a little bit of attention to, mostly because yeah. of my um, Dutch ancestry. I, mm, got yes. a, I got a message yesterday morning from my cousin in Holland saying, you know, so-and-so did wonderful. It was, you know, there's a lot of really good news around her particular performance. Uh, and then I realized that, yeah, well, we won't be seeing that here in the United States um, if at all, since it's the Netherlands, um, until primetime, until you know, like about eight or 10 hours later. And sure enough, they did end up covering it in primetime, but I already knew. So yeah. It's like, yeah, whatever. That's right. The speech and speech getting start on the uh, frozen canals yes. uh, in, in Netherlands. That's the origin yep. of the sport. Yeah. Yep. Um, and yeah, there's, there's a bunch of you know, skating related stuff that basically boils down to that kind of thing. Yep. Very cool. So let's move on. Speaking of cool to some yeah. cool things we've been seeing lately. Mm-hmm. Um, I, w- speaking of the Netherlands, I took your advice and am about a third of the way through termination shock by Neil Stevenson. Mm-hmm. Um, indeed. It was very interesting to see all these references to the Netherlands, uh, the Dutch royalty uh, and all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, one of the things that it, brought to mind for me. And I had this uh, last night when I was watching the Dutch skaters in primetime is that they were being commented on by, of course, American commentators, which is fine. Mm. They, they, they just mangle Dutch names. They just, <laughs> they just do. And uh, it, it's just the nature of the beast, right? I mean, like my name is very, very Dutch, but in Holland, you don't pronounce it Notenboom. Um, it's pronounced very differently. And of course, when you're Dutch and you hear it pronounced the American way, it just feels wrong, uh, which is is something that I, f- I felt over and over again last night as they were mispronouncing various Dutch names. So anyway, yes, uh, Termination Shock sounds so far very, very interesting. I'm looking forward to uh, to finishing that hopefully this week. Uh, on TV, we have, we binged Reacher, which has nothing to do with technology at all, other than it's a good show. Uh-huh. Um, it's one of those almost murder mystery drama type things. Uh, Reacher may sound familiar in that uh, there was, I think, one or two movies starring Tom Cruise as Reacher, which got very, uh, the the fan base was quite upset because Reacher is described as a very tall person, a very buff person, um, and uh, Tom Cruise is neither of those things. (laughs) <laughs> but but the actor that they have for this uh, Amazon Prime series, Reacher, is is actually really good. He fits the the description of the author's character very well, and it was a very well done series. We enjoyed it. Like I said, we ended up binging it over the course of about three nights. Um, and then we're also picking up on the second season of Raised by Wolves. Mm. Uh, have you seen the first season of that yet? Yes, I, I did. Love the uh, first season. And looking forward to uh, clearing off some 
stuff I'm watching now to get to the second season. Sure. Yep. It's, I think they've released so no spoilers. <laughs> no, no spoilers. Yeah. Can't have that. Um, they've uh, released, I think two or three, this one is not like Reacher. They dropped all the episodes on one day, uh, mm. with, uh, with, uh, um, raised by wolves. Yeah, it's HBO. You know, so once every week. Um, yeah. so I think they're like two or three episodes in so far. Anyway, enjoying that too. Cool. Um, so I'm also watching a, a TV series, binging it, really going through it fast, but it's really unusual because you won't find it on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, Peacock, Disney, HBO, <laughs> any of that stuff. I, I just happened to see a random TikTok video where somebody just, you know, showed a clip and instantly was like, oh, it's a, it's a time loop show. Right. And I love time loops, you know, and Groundhog Day, and Groundhog Day just passed and all that. He I mean, says in I the love, middle of COVID. Yes. I love time loops. <laughs> what I love them is, so this was a time loop show um, about uh, basically a, you know, pa two passengers on a bus that get stuck in a time loop. The bus explodes and they get set back in time and, you know, the bus explodes again, you know, so they have to figure out what to do. Um, it is uh, from China, as in the Olympics in Beijing, not Taiwan, uh, where we get a lot of, you know, shows mm -hmm. that you would say are from China. This is from China. So uh, it is not available on any of those platforms. It somehow is available on YouTube. Uh, not quite sure. It seems to be an actual Taiwanese company that somehow does legitimately have the rights to put it on YouTube. So all the episodes are there with English subtitles. Uh, it's, a, it's so far turning out to be a great time loop uh, show because it's taking its time instead of being like, oh, we need to squeeze this all into a two hour movie. Right. Or like uh, there was that Russian doll show. I think it was eight or 10 episodes. Yep. It was, yep. and, you know, instead of it really feels like it's like, let's explore this mm -hmm. and, and, and interesting characters. And it's also just interesting culturally because it was, definitely not made for an international audience it really feels like it was made just for chinese consumption huh. and we're just so we're getting to see it um and i don't know how good the subtitles are in terms of really right. conveying right. What yeah we saying. had that discussion some episodes ago yeah. yeah um but uh but you know it's enough for the story definitely sure. i just you know, try to get cultural nuances and everything like that but it, it's a really interesting show and um yeah that's why i wish my you know, I'll probably extend my YouTube uh, premium <laughs> so I, I don't have to watch the ads, you know, because I'm watching it mostly on Apple TV using the YouTube app. Right. Um, to, that's how I'm going through most of the episodes. So that's really cool. Um, and, I, so I looked at the first five minutes of that based on on seeing it here in our show notes. Yeah. And um, I was impressed. Uh, very high, you know, production quality, really good stuff. <laughs> very high production values, except. And well, yeah. no, they and they they blow the bus up. I like in the first five minutes, the stage is set, right? It's, oh yeah, the stage is. It becomes very obvious in the first five minutes that it's a it's a time loop. So yeah, it's very cool. The uh, it's funny that the production values of the actual show itself. We're talking directing, acting, mm -hmm. uh, props. The you know the whole works, top notch. Right. The opening credits and the closing credits. I thought the opening uh, credits were cool. They were cool. You wait till you watch them a few times. Okay. It's the animation. You're like, I mean, maybe they're intentionally going it for it to look like cheap animation, but it's like, it, it, it looks, I don't know. It just didn't, 
quite get there. And then the closing credits also, for some reason, there's a lot of music that there's at least one song that's played a lot and it's over the closing credits and there's some other music. And for some reason, that's all in English. Hmm. Um, I don't know why. Right. And it doesn't fit our like American standards of like what song should be going with what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Like that's like what it's like a Celine Dion type ballad type of thing. You're like, no, that's not what <laughs> that doesn't fit. But again, it's a cultural difference, right? right. It, maybe that seems completely normal with the action going on there to have a music like this in China, just in the United States, it would be, and in Europe probably too, be very different kinds of music that they would put with what you're seeing. So anyway, it's interesting. And I also wanted to mention uh, that, uh, you know, they announced the Oscar um, uh, nominations and one of my previous ain't it cool mentions Coda, the Mm -hmm. movie that's on Apple TV from last year uh, got nominated for best picture and uh, deservingly. So it's a great film. It's on Apple TV plus. If you have Apple TV plus, you haven't watched Coda yet. Um, just Just a great, movie and then also i noticed that we've talked before about don't look up that right. also got nominated right and that's netflix on yeah and i just again browsing headlines as a result of this i noticed that amazon also managed to get several nominations uh for oscars for their for the stuff they've produced the thing that cracked me up is that three of the four are for being the ricardos various actors yes. in being the ricardos uh, which I did not watch. And then the third one is best hair and makeup for coming to America, which. Eh. Oh, <laughs> so. yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, best actor and best actress are both um, from uh, Ricardo's. And we did see that. And did you? It, was it good? It was, yes. It's, it, it, yeah, it's definitely worth watching. Okay. It's especially if you have any, if you've ever seen, I love Lucy, you have any interest in like those two people, right? you know, which my wife and I definitely do. Okay. Right. Then seeing the story about them, it's not a, it's, it's based on true events, but it, it combines from what I understand, like the events of one week that was really interesting with ah, the events of another mean. week that were really interesting overlaps them. It makes them appear as they happen the same week. Got it. Um, yes. So the things you're seeing are very true and you can actually go watch. We actually watched uh, the episode that they're, supposedly recording that week we went and watched that episode because you know you know that they were very meticulous and showing oh, like right, that, right. And, and so you want we wanted to see like what was the real thing and uh you know so there's that but you know it it's true events but kind of rearranged and put together in a nice little movie package um the uh the best byline that our subtitle i guess you'd call it for a a series that i, I we watch regularly mm-hmm. um if you've ever watched the great it's um, yeah. essentially a, a dramedy about uh, Catherine the Great in mm-hmm. Russia. Um, it's, they, they claim it's a, an occasionally true story, which I thought was a, a great way to characterize what they were doing with it. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So the closest thing we get to ads on this thing is our own blatant self-promotion this week. I would like people to have a look at someone is in my computer controlling it. What can I do? It's askleo.com slash one, four, two, five, nine, six. And it is something, and I know that you probably get it too, um, where you've got people 
reaching out for assistance, absolutely convinced that somebody is doing something to their computer mm-hmm. without their without their permission. Um, and I would say, at least on my side, 90% of the time, the solutions or the problems are actually much more mundane. Not sure. that it never happens. Not 99%. that it never happens, but people are very quick to jump to that conclusion. Of course, because so, so, that's what TV and movies tell us. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's worth reviewing if you ever find yourself or know someone in that kind of uh, position. Yep. I'll, uh, I'll link to something for um, tips on using the Notes app on the Mac. Um, it's a great, uh, the Mac Notes app has actually come a long way since the beginning when mm-hmm. you could just put a little bit of text in a note. Now it actually has a lot of features that used to be in expensive pay notes apps are mm-hmm. they're now on that. So I thought I'd do it an episode pointing out all these cool things you can do. Cool. 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 Well, might be our longest episode ever. Yes. The indeed. show notes for this <laughs> T let's see tech enthusiast hour and a half tehpodcast.com slash teh155. If you've got a comment or a question, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the teh podcast. Or you can always leave a comment on that show notes page. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks, as always, for listening, for sticking it out for an hour and a half. Yeah. We will see you here again sometime soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.